All right, let's go ahead and get started. So, over the course of the last few weeks, uh, we have been talking about the way, and um, we've gone through the fact that Christianity has not ever been, wasn't designed to be, and shouldn't be a, a situation where you are living your life and doing your thing, and Christianity is kind of attached on the outside. Uh, it is the way. Um, last week, we started talking about ideas that are truths, and we uh, are now stepping off in, into um, anxiety. Now, I know that anxiety is something that we all fight with. It's all something we all deal with. So I want to start off with the premise uh, that we've talked about before, and it is that we are in a fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so here we see that we are clearly in a battle. God has given us armor that we're, we are to put on the armor and so that we can fight. But the only offensive weapon that we see here, oftentimes it's mentioned that the sword is an offensive weapon, but Paul doesn't use the word here for a long sword, but for a short defensive sword. The only offensive weapon that we've been given is prayer. So this is a how-to on standing firm. Paul clearly wants us to stand. He says that over and over again, stand therefore. Having st standing, 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 standing. And we are to withstand. So once we recognize that, we recognize that prayer is one of our, is the primary weapon of a believer. I've said before and I'll say it again. The fighting position of a Christian is on their knees. We are commanded to pray at all times in the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. We know and can see that Jesus was a prayer warrior. In Luke chapter 5 we see Jesus Christ, uh, but even now more the report went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. If Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, 
felt the need to withdraw to pray. How do we think we can take on the Christian walk without prayer? How do we think that we, in our weakness, in our human frailty, bound, by, we, bound as we are to the flesh, that we can fight this fight without prayer? So Jesus doesn't leave us ignorant with how to pray. The disciples came to him and said, how do we pray? And Jesus said, when you pray, pray then like this. Now, oftentimes we recite the Lord's Prayer, and that, that's okay. But Jesus is not saying, pray this. He's not giving us a, 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 a prayer to rotely just say. He's giving us a guide how to pray. And so each one of these little sections is kind of a header. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I have found in my own prayer life that I actually kind of keep this prayer in my head and use it as a template. I've shared with the church before, I'm that guy who... Uh, if you ask me to file something, I'm going to stand at the filing cabinet. If it's, a, if, if it's something that starts with the letter G, I'm going to stand there and go, A, B, C, D, F, G, G, and then put it there. I don't know why I have to do that, but I have to sing the little song in my head every time. And so when I pray, I literally say this prayer. So I, I will uh, sit down, and I'm like, Our Father who art in heaven. So that's praise. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we praise you for the gifts that you give us. We we honor you. We thank you for who you are, that you revealed yourself to us. And so that adoration that we see in the beginning of the prayer, that's just a heading. You know what God's done in your life to be faithful. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the the, the section where we pray for those needs. I pray for our children's department. I pray for the youth. I pray for 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 people who I know who are lost. This is where I pray that God's will would take root in people's lives. Give us this day our daily bread. This is where we pray for those day-to-day needs. God, help me have the money to pay this bill. God, I pray that you give me work opportunities so that I can do this or do that. This is where we pray for our daily needs to be met. God, I I need you to step into my life. Those are legitimate prayers. Sometimes we act like, Um, God isn't concerned with with those kind of prayers, and clearly Jesus gave us a heading for it. In fact, um, I think I've shared with the church before, when I was in Haiti right after the earthquake, um, it was uh, devastating. There were over 100,000 people who died. Um, I got to the city about two days after the earthquake, and already... Uh, Port-au-Prince had a very distinct smell of death. It was overwhelming. It was physically demanding uh, in that we were working every day from 4 or 5 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night um, trying to just find people, everything from bucket brigades where you're standing on where a a dog has identified that there's a person there and you're standing there with a five-gallon bucket and you're putting... um, rubble in that bucket and you pass it to the next guy and then after like 10 minutes you move to to this spot and then somebody else is filling the bucket and you're just standing there passing buckets and then you kind of circle around and around until you find the person that the dog identified and it, it was physically exhausting it was mentally exhausting the only food we had access to was 
uh, what you brought in, and then the USAID uh, bags of rice. And so you can uh, get really full on rice for about 10 minutes, and then you're really hungry again. Uh, it's just a, a heavy starch. And so I, uh, I actually had some, some guys that were working with us as translators, and I made the comment uh, just off the top of my head, you know, I'd give a million dollars for an egg or something like that. And the next morning, these two guys showed up with eggs where they had gone out in the country and got eggs. I didn't give them a million dollars for the eggs, but I did buy the eggs. Uh, and so I was boil- I was in the kitchen tent and I was had my little steel cup and I was boiling those eggs and kind of salivating. And somebody came and said, Chaplain, uh, there's a little girl here to see you. And so I was kind of annoyed, just to be honest with you, because I'm boiling my eggs and I was really looking forward to them. But I walked outside and there was this little girl uh, who was probably four or five years old who's standing there holding a kitten around the neck and she wanted me to pray for this cat. Hey, I'm not a cat person. Um, not a big fan of cats in general. But this particular kitten, um, because of the earthquake the the part of the problem in Port-au-Prince was was that a lot of the buildings were built with uh, sea, uh, beach sand, and so they didn't withstand the movement of the earthquake, and it was concrete that was poured without rebar. And so once the, the ground undulated under this earthquake, the buildings just kind of collapsed. And so this cat had gotten all kinds of rubble and stuff in its eyes, and then its little, little eyes had gotten infected and matted. And, and so the cat's face was swollen, and, and her the kitten's eyes were matted shut. And the first thought that went through my mind is, in the midst of all just the mental and emotional exhaustion, the, the, the compassion fatigue, my first thought was, God didn't care about this stupid cat. And immediately the Holy Spirit convicted me that God does care about that little girl. And so uh, I reached in my pocket where I had some anointing oil, and I I uh, got down on my knees with this little girl, and I anointed that kitten and prayed for this cat. Um, and the little girl was happy, and she ran off, and I went and ate my eggs and forgot all about it. Um, about four or five days later, the little girl brought the cat back, and the cat's eyes were fine. I don't know if God healed that kitten's eyes, but I do know that God cares about little girls and little boys who are just seeking him. And so it was my privilege and honor to be able to pray for this kitten. So Jesus gives us an opportunity here to pray for our daily needs. And then, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Or as if you grew up in going to the Boy Scouts, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, I'm not even sure what translation that comes from, but that's how I memorized it when I was in the, in the Boy Scouts. So... Um, It's interesting to me that Jesus ties forgiveness to our ability to forgive. We need to recognize as we're praying that if you're holding something against somebody else, you need to deal with that in your own heart. Jesus is here giving you an opportunity in this model prayer to identify in your own heart where there are people who you're angry with or people you have not forgiven. And, And... There's lots of examples in the Bible of unforgiveness and how that will rot your soul. If you're holding a grudge and being unforgiving to somebody, you recognize that you're not hurting them at all. They don't even know it probably. What you are doing is destroying your own heart. So here, our own forgiveness is tied by Jesus to us forgiving others. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here we're praying for divine protection. I believe that Jesus said to Peter, Satan is crouching for you. He wants to sift you. So I'm praying for you. Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't think that necessarily means that Jesus' prayer failed. Because we don't know how far Peter could have ran. Because he ran back home. And then it ends with, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It ends in praise. It opens and ends with praise. Now, as we talk about anxiety, uh, oftentimes, because the Bible does command us to be anxious for nothing, we forget that our initial, initial response to troubles that come is really outside of our control. Okay, so if we look at Luke chapter 8, one day Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And then what does it say? And they were afraid. Now clearly they were afraid when the wind and the rain and everything happened. But here they're in the presence of Jesus as he commands the wind and waves to shut up. And their initial response is fear. The Stoics believed that stressful and dangerous situations unfold like this. Something happens. We wake up to reports that the stock market's taken a dive. We get screamed at by our boss. The doctor raises an eyebrow and recommends we go in for further testing. And this naturally provokes a reaction. Usually not a good one and a scared one. I just this week was doing a routine doctor's visit. And uh, I had done some blood tests and some, you know, uh, all, all, you know, urine tests and, and peed in a cup and did all this stuff. And I do this every year. Normally the doctor comes in and goes... Uh, yeah, well, everything looks fine. Well, well, this nurse comes in with a sonogram machine uh, rolling it. I'm like, hey, what are we doing? What's going on? And she gave me a dismissive answer that was clearly trying to deflect and was like, oh, we, we just, we, we do this. And, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm laying down and she's doing a sonogram on my stomach. And I'm like, hey, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? And I, I, it made me really nervous. Now, I found out that since I'm past 50, that we are going to do a sonogram every time and make sure that my bladder is doing what it's supposed to do because I'm, I guess, at an age where they need to make sure I don't have bladder cancer. I wish she had told me that because my anxiety jumped up when all of a sudden a nurse comes trolling in after taking all, all the blood tests and stuff and starts doing a sonogram. And I'm like, I know I'm not pregnant. So, What's going on? Um, that's a very small example of uh, people in this church. I've, I've had several stories where a lady has come to me and said, be praying for me. I went in for my annual mammography, and the doctor said, called me that afternoon and said, there's something that looks a little strange, so could you come back in tomorrow, and we're going to do a biopsy, or we're going to do a different kind of test. And everybody's 
Anxiety goes up. Everybody's worst case scenario. You, uh, one particular lady was telling me she had in her mind that night she couldn't sleep. She had planned her funeral and had planned what kind of wife she wanted her husband to marry after she died. The test, the second test that she went to, turned out there was nothing wrong with her. It was fi- absolutely fine. But that anxiety that comes is a natural response. We either have a, a, a fear, anger, sometimes emotional, or we go to the opposite way and we just paralyze and shut down. Some people, their natural response to bad things that happen is that they just shut down. They can't do anything. Uh, I, as, as working with first responders, I've been in a situation before and watched as someone just stood there. Their wife had had a, uh, had a heart attack and uh, she is passed out in the kitchen, uh, get a call, we show up, and the husband is literally just standing in the kitchen staring over his wife, and she'd been making a sandwich, and there's sandwich stuff everywhere, and you think to yourself, why aren't you doing CPR? Why aren't you doing anything? Why are you just standing there looking at her? And then once we started CPR and tried to get information from her, it was clear that he was in such shock he couldn't remember his address and were standing in the house. So some people, they just locked down. These involuntary and immediate impressions that we form, the Stoics, they call that fantasia. Um, that is a normal human response. The issue is, is that as believers, we're not left in a situation where that's all we can do. The reason why I brought up the Stoics is because they taught that everything that comes at you should immediately go in one of two buckets. Either I can do something about it right now, And if that's the case, then I do something about it. I don't have a bucket for I'll deal with it later. If I can do something about it, I deal with it. If it's an issue that I can't do anything about, the weather, political situation, um, a doctor's announcement, if I can't do anything about it, then I would work to not think about it anymore. I'm not going to waste mental energy on things that I can't deal with. I, I try to practice that as a person in my life now. If a problem comes at me that there's nothing I can do about, I'm not going to waste mental energy worrying about it. You know, if, if we're planning a wedding and it's going to be out in the park and the bride is all worried about whether or not it's going to rain, if it rains, you can't run around with a big enough umbrella to keep it from raining at the wedding, so there's no point in worrying about it. You, got, you, you develop a plan B, that's something you can do, but... You can't worry about whether it's raining or not. If the doctor says to come in for a biopsy, you can't do anything to change your biology in between now and the time that you go in for the test to to fix it. But as believers, we do have a third option. And that is that we can call out on the God who created the universe. If I find out that someone that I love has been diagnosed with cancer, if I find out that if I find out that there's, there's something going on and it is outside of what I can do, the solution for anxiety is not to try to convince myself to be calm. That's not possible. If somebody says, hey, you need to calm down, that is a ridiculous request. It's physically not possible. It's along the lines of, if I were to say to you, don't think about a purple monkey. Everybody in this room is now trying to imagine a purple monkey. There's, it's not meant to, you cannot unconjure that thought from your head. 
And so what oftentimes believers do is they say, the Bible commands me to be anxious for nothing, so I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry. And I have actually gone into people's homes before, and they have wrapped themselves around a hub trying to convince themselves not to worry about the situation to the point that now they've created a new anxiety over worrying about the fact that they're being disobedient and worrying. The solution that Paul gives is is right in the same text. Do not be anxious about anything but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, letting your requests be made known to God. The cure for anxiety is turning that energy into sleep. I'm sorry, into prayer. I have an example in my head where that came from. Yeah, purple monkey. I have discovered, let me put it this way. When I had children that were... Three of them were in diapers and one of them was six. Um, I would think to myself, if I can just get these kids to where they're old enough, to where they can take care of themselves, I'll be all right. It feels like when you're in that toddler, five, six-year-old age. uh, I remember when we had three um, and we had to move from a man-to-man defense to a zone. Because when you've only got two... You can go, you take her and I'll take her and we're good. Now, once you have three, you have to go to a zone defense and like, I'm going to cover this area and you take the baby. I got these. I learned like walking through the mall or whatever to count to five over and over again. I was constantly walking around going one, two, three, four, five. Okay, we're there. We're all here. We're all accounted for. Everybody's got all their limbs. We're good. One, two, three, four. Where's William? Where's William? Oh, there he is. He's, He's hiding under the table. William, get out from there. Molly, put that out of your mouth. And so I would just think that once I got them big enough to where um, they could take care of themselves, then I would be okay. And now that I'm older, I have learned um, that I probably worry more now than I did when they were little. Because now it's not that I'm worried that they're going to put you know, dirt in their mouth or something like that. Now, I, I, who's influencing their lives? What is, what is going on as William's over here doing this? And who is speaking into his life? Who is guiding him? Who's leading him? As Molly has moved out of the house and I'm thinking, okay, so you know, what's going on? Who, who is influencing her now? And what's, what's going on? Where are they at? It's just different. It doesn't, you don't stop worrying. It just becomes different. And I'm the kind of person because I'm naturally uh, a mechanic. I want to fix everything. And if I'm not careful, what I will find myself doing is laying in the bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, running through scenarios and solutions to possible scenarios. I'm wargaming my children's life. Okay, so if this child marries this idiot, then what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to clearly have to raise my grandkids. So what we'll do is this. And I'm I'm creating these scenarios that haven't happened, and I'm wargaming them and trying to come up with solutions and whiteboarding them in my mind. That level of anxiety does zero to affect the situation. If I took that same energy and when I'm disciplined and make myself take that energy and convert it into prayer for those kids, I find myself going to sleep. I find that all of that anxiety washes away. 
as I walk through each child and pray for them. And I pray for my wife and I pray for their future spouses. And I'm praying, and in my mind, I'm praying for other things, but I just kind of doze off because my anxiety disappears. Even in huge situations, I've had, uh, I have someone that I'm counseling right now who has legitimate reasons for anxiety. He, he has, uh, his marriage is in shambles, uh, probably not recoverable. He has lost his job because of things that he's done. He uh, is, is a grown man who is literally couch surfing at this point in his life. And he's like, I can't, I'm so worried, I can't, I can't fix it. And what I suggested to him was pray the psalm out loud. Sit in a room and read Psalm 2 out loud, personalizing. As we pray and convert the energy that's causing such anxiety, and we convert that into praise and prayer, now we're doing something. We're actually talking to somebody who can do something about it. There's a difference between if something's going on that I don't like and my posture and the way that I deal with it is different if I'm talking to a buddy about it or if I'm talking to somebody that can actually fix it. And we believe that prayer is not the last resort. You know, we've all heard the joke about the deacons who were talking about a particular problem in the church and somebody suggested that they prayed and the, that somebody piped up and said, has it come to that? Really, is it so bad that we've got to pray? No, prayer should be our first resort. Prayer should, we should recognize that as we're praying, as, as we're dealing with issues that we can't control, we're talking to the only person in the universe who can. Father God, I pray that you would teach us to be a people who pray, that we would learn dependency, that we would learn to lean hard on you, that you would be our God and we would be your people. And we would recognize that prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is not a when we can't do something else. Prayer should be our knee-jerk reaction. Lord, help us to be people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.